Well, welcome back to the Bible Reading Challenge podcast. My name is Aaron Ventura, and this is episode two of our Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation. And uh, just a couple reminders before we get started. You can email me with questions at aventura at christkirk.com or use the Google form, which should be in the show notes. Uh, It's been great to get your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. And uh, if there is a question you have that's related to Revelation that I do not cover, uh, please do email me because uh, even if I don't cover it in a podcast episode, I would like to at least add it to my uh, big spreadsheet, which I hope to make available when it is finished. Second, if this podcast has been helpful to you, please do share it with your friends and uh, rate us on iTunes. This helps other people uh, know about us. There uh, are new people joining the Bible Reading Challenge every week, and so uh, we want to keep pointing them to good teaching as best we can. Uh, So with that, let's get into Revelation chapter 2, and uh, what I want to do is begin with a summary of the whole chapter, and then we'll go back and answer a few questions that I think uh, at least I had and perhaps you had uh, reading it. Revelation 2 contains the first four of the seven letters to the seven churches. And you'll remember from chapter 1 that we said the seven stars are seven pastors or bishops, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus gives this threat in Revelation 2, 5, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, this is a threat that Christ is going to snuff them out, remove them from the holy place, which is where the lampstands were in the temple, so that they're no longer considered churches. And this is a threat that everyone should take heed to, even if they are not, say, the church in Ephesus. Uh, Over and over again, we see this refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, So we should read these letters closely, asking God to convict us, to convict our pastors and our churches of the sins that we as a church specifically need to confess and deal with and then to receive encouragement for the things we are doing well. God is doesn't just have criticism, he also has commendation for us. And what God says to one church, all of us can actually learn from. Now let's uh, briefly summarize the message to each church and then we'll we'll hit some of those questions. Verses 1 to 7 are addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And this is significant in that this entire letter is directed to the pastor of the church. All of the second person pronouns, you or your, are singular. Of course, this has application to the congregation as well and everyone else who hears this letter. But Jesus has some strong words of both encouragement and warning for this angel, this pastor of the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor your patience, and then you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Now, doesn't that sound like the life of a faithful pastor? Labor, patience, testing false teachers, rooting out false doctrine, persevering and not growing weary. And God commends this pastor for his works, especially his intolerance. Notice that here, intolerance of evil is a virtue. But there is still one thing he lacks. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so the message to this pastor in Ephesus is to keep up the good work, uh, keep up that intolerance, but you need to repent of your lack of love. 
In verse five, he says, do the first works. So these are the works that you used to do when your love was hot. It's kind of like telling a husband in a marriage counseling, you need to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You need to treat her the way you used to do when you first fell in love, when you were bringing her flowers, writing love notes, romantic dates, those kinds of things. You need to stir up those first works that you used to do and reignite your love before it goes cold. Because if you persist in this lovelessness, that lampstand is going to go out. Love is like the oil that kept the lampstand burning. And without this a love of the Spirit, this oil of the Spirit, the church's flame goes out. Verses 8 to 11 are addressed to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And just like the letter to the pastor of Ephesus, here also Jesus addresses the pastor of Smyrna saying, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Uh, So this pastor has been working hard. He's endured tribulation and poverty, and he's been slandered by these Jews who are actually false Jews of the synagogue of Satan. And God's word to this pastor is, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. And it is not only the pastor who's going to suffer, but we have here the shift to the second person plural of y'all or ye in the King James, speaking now to the whole church, that they are going to have tribulation for 10 days. But if they are faithful unto death, they will receive a crown of life. And the contrast here is between 10 days of suffering and a thousand years of reigning with Christ. Some take these 10 days as literal, some as symbolic. Either way, the message here is just like what Paul says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. So you only have to suffer for 10 days, and then you're going to reign with Christ in the millennium for, uh, symbolically, 365,000 days. It's a short time with eternity, and this is meant to motivate them to not fear and to be faithful unto death. So God uh, doesn't have anything bad to say about the church in Smyrna. They're already suffering as it is and are probably going to be martyred. And so God's word is, don't fear. Be faithful, and if you overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. Verses 12 to 17 are addressed to the angel of the church in Pergamos. And Pergamos is an especially tough mission field. We are told in verse 13 that Satan's throne is there. And we'll uh, talk more about Satan's throne in a little bit. We also see that Antipas uh, was killed there for his faith. And we don't know exactly who this Antipas was, but he was a faithful martyr for Christ. And with Pergamos being the capital of Satan's demonic activity, it's really no surprise that there are a bunch of false teachers there. And God wants this pastor to exercise church church discipline to get these men out of the church. These demonic false teachers are teaching the doctrine of Balaam, which includes sexual immorality, intermarriage with unbelievers, and eating things sacrificed to idols. And so God threatens to fight against them with the sword of his mouth if there is not repentance. Lastly, in verses 18 to 28, there is this address to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And God begins by saying that he also knows the works, the love, the service, the faith, and patience that this pastor has demonstrated. 
But verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So notice, these are actually the same sins that the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans were encouraging sexual immorality, and communion with idols, which uh, Paul says are demons. One of the things you will consistently find with false teachers and those who abandon the faith are these two sins, sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, this kind of thing, and turning people away from the Lord's table to the world's table, from communion and friendship with God to communion and friendship with the world. So uh, there's a summary of the first four letters and the condition of those churches. Uh, There's not a ton of really complicated stuff here, uh, but there are a few questions that I want to answer. The first question I want to answer is, who are the Nicolaitans? One of the church fathers, Irenaeus, writing in the second century AD, says that the Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas, who was one of the seven first ordained to the diaconate by the apostles in Acts 6.5. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence, that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So if this report by Irenaeus is accurate, then you would have here a former deacon who apostatized and became a false teacher. I think that's interesting, but it's highly debatable whether that's true, and I think it's somewhat unlikely. Uh, I think the primary meaning is found in the name itself. Nicolaitan literally means people conqueror. And a few verses later, we encounter Balaamites, which literally are people eaters, gluttons, people conquerors as well. And these two groups are connected in verses 14 and 15 in that both Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, they teach the same thing sexual immorality, and idolatry. And so there's actually a wordplay here in that we are told in verse 7, to him who overcomes or conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This word overcome in Greek is nikeo, same as Nicolaitan. So putting this all together, God commends the pastor in Ephesus for hating the deeds of these Nicolaitans, these people conquerors, who are teaching people to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so to those who Nikeo conquer, overcome by faith in God, they're going to eat not of meat sacrificed to idols, but from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I take these Nicolaitans and the Balaamites to be basically the same group of false teachers. I suspect these are false Jews or what you would call Judaizers, what Paul calls the synagogue of Satan. And you notice that language of synagogue hearkening back to the synagogue worship, worship at the temple. So these are Jews who retain the outward forms and appearances of Jewish religion, but they are actually worshiping demons. And as we'll see as this book progresses, we're going to see that Jerusalem has indeed become Babylon, this place of every haunt of demon and evil spirit. And that's why uh, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. That's why uh, Jesus says, I'm going to cast out one demon, but if you don't repent, there's going to be seven demons far worse that come and inhabit the house. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus cleanses the temple in his day, but 40 years later, it's worse than it was in really the history of the entire world. The second question I want to answer is, what is the second death in verse 11? Well, we are told in Revelation 20 what it is. The second death, it says, is the lake of fire. So after God judges the dead before his great white throne in Revelation 20, it says, 
Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So if the second death is being thrown into the lake of fire, then what is the first death? Well, the first death is when the physical body dies and the soul is separated from the body. The second death is the eternal punishment that unbelievers experience in their resurrected bodies. So the promise in Revelation 2.11 is that all who overcome by faith, they do not need to fear death of any kind. You don't have to be afraid of the first death and you don't have to be afraid of the second death either. The third question is, what does it mean that Satan had his throne in Pergamos or Pergamum? We have already seen that in Smyrna there were false Jews who had become a synagogue of Satan, meaning they worship Satan and his demons instead of Christ. And now here in Pergamum, we are told that Satan has his throne here. So uh, some have actually connected this with various cult sites there. Uh, there was a throne-like altar to Zeus. There was the cult of Asclepius, which had a serpent as its symbol. Uh, Pergamus was also a cult center for Athena and Dionysius. Philip Kaiser points out that Pergamus was also a center for education. It had a famous 200,000 book library. It was also a center for medicine and healing. He says the influential physician Galen, who is famous even to this day, tied medicine and occultism together by means of the shrine to Asclepius. So the medical symbol that is actually still in use today, it's on the logo of the World Health Organization. Uh, make of that what you will. Uh, if you've ever seen the rod with that snake around it, it is called the Rod of Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. And Pergamus was a center of this mixture of medicine and demon worship. So I take all this to mean that at the time of Revelation, Satan had made Pergamus the capital or central hub of his demonic activity. That was his control center. And it's possible he may have had a, a different capital or control center at other times in history. Maybe it was in Babylon. Maybe it was in Rome. Maybe it was uh, in Assyria once upon a time. He can, he can move it around if he wants to. Uh, and here in Pergamus, though, it was visibly present in these various occult temples and worship of the Greek gods. Now, when we get to Revelation 20, we'll see that Satan is now bound. So I don't believe he has a throne like he used to have. But there are hints throughout scripture that spiritual beings still do have a geographical or territorial kind of boundary. So uh, Hebrews 2.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So all of God's elect have angels assigned to them or angels helping to minister to them. And that's what their job is. These angels go with us. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. So every elect child has an angel assigned to them. And so when Christians travel or move to various places, angels go with them. They are ministering servants. As we travel through various geographic regions, so also angels go with us. And it is the angels who wage the warfare in heaven as we worship God and serve him on earth. And Revelation is one of these books that really gives us a glimpse into what that spiritual warfare looks like. Uh, we'll see this more in future chapters, how the prayers of the saints on earth go up to heaven and then suddenly they there's warfare, angels fighting on our behalf. And so we should be aware of this kind of spiritual warfare, this demonic activity, and yet not be afraid of it because we have God and we have his angels with us. 
The fourth question is, what is the significance of Jezebel in verse 20? So uh, Jezebel first shows up in the Bible in 1 Kings 16, and this is when Ahab, the king of Israel, marries her. It says, he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Uh, So Jezebel becomes queen and immediately leads Israel off into idolatry. Two chapters later, we see Jezebel massacres the prophets of the Lord. And Elijah arranges for this showdown between himself and the prophets of Baal. And it says in 1 Kings 18, 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Notice there the mention of eating at Jezebel's table. A few chapters later on, she comes up with a plan to have Naboth murdered so that Ahab can have his vineyard. She sets up false witnesses against Naboth and then they execute him. And God pronounces this judgment on her. The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field says, there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So Jezebel is a evil, she's a murderous woman. She gathers hundreds of false teachers to her table and incites God's people to idolatry. Uh, Now, because of Jezebel's very infamous reputation, she's like the great villain, uh, the great female villain, at least in the Old Testament, I I highly doubt that this was a popular name for Jews to name their daughters, okay? So it's like uh, you don't see Christians naming their child Judas. Uh, I don't think there's Jews who are naming their child Jezebel. And so I think here in Revelation, this is a figurative name for a, a very real, literal female prophetess that was teaching these same doctrines as the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. And what are they? It's fornication and idolatry over and over again. Fornication and idolatry. These are the sins that tempt God's people. There is a tradition that identifies this woman in Revelation, this Jezebel, as the wife of the bishop. And this is because some manuscripts actually read your wife, Jezebel, rather than the woman, Jezebel. And this is the view of Philip Kaiser, who holds to what uh, we call the Greek majority text. Uh, I personally lean more towards uh, what we would call the received text, the textus receptus, which has quite a bit of overlap with the majority text, but Revelation is one of the more difficult textual books. And so uh, Kaiser's view is that, yeah, this this word sue in Greek, your, uh, is there. And so it refers to the wife of the bishop. Um, I don't take that view, but I think it's definitely possible. And just the very existence of these manuscripts in the majority text Uh, suggests that this was likely a early interpretation of who this Jezebel was. So I am open to this idea, uh, but I do find it a little hard to reconcile with all the good things that God commends this pastor for in verse 19. It seems like it would be a really rather obvious transgression that he's allowing his wife uh, to do these things, to teach and seduce people to idolatry. But uh, I can imagine a scenario where that happens. Faithful pastor, but his wife is doing all sorts of stuff uh, on the side. So maybe, maybe it's the pastor's wife, maybe not. But this is definitely someone that is inside the church. So uh, Jezebel is a member in good standing. 
Jezebel considers herself a prophetess, which uh, was actually a legitimate function in the early church. So think of Philip's daughters in Acts 21. Uh, but we'll know that female prophets were only allowed to prophesy privately per 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and that's that's a whole other podcast episode for another day. So uh, this Jezebel here has all the appearances of propriety, but the fruit of her ministry is apostasy, fornication, idolatry. And there are tons of Jezebels in the church today. Women who are wives of pastors or elders in the church, who have the approval of the leaders of the evangelical elite, they speak at conferences, they're popular on social media, they write books, they have book deals, they teach at seminaries and Bible colleges, and they teach just enough truth to appear Christian and orthodox, and then they use that as a shield to hide behind if anyone calls them out. Uh, But what they cunningly teach is deceptive. They seduce people away from Christ and into worldliness. They twist scripture and they use grace as a cover for sin. They criticize godly men, just like Jezebel falsely accused Naboth and had him murdered. And so God has very strong words of judgment on Jezebel. He said, I gave her time to repent, but she did not. And so the dogs are going to eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. God says, I will kill her children with death. So uh, don't be a Jezebel. Be on guard against Jezebels in the church who use their feminine charms to seduce God's people away from the truth. Our fifth and final question is, what is the morning star promised to us in verse 28? Well, here almost everyone agrees that the morning star is Jesus, because it says at the very end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. But what are we to learn about Jesus by this association? If you look at the various gifts that are promised to each church for being faithful, whether it's the the hidden manna, the white stone, eternal life, uh, the crown of life, these are all connected to Jesus in some way. And so uh, it's one thing to just say the morning star equals Jesus, but what is meant by this association with the morning star? Rush Dooney says in his commentary that this morning star is a symbol of world dominion, and it connects with what is said right before it in Revelation 2, 26-27, that these saints will be given power over the nations. And then there is that quote from Psalm 2. In modern cosmology, the morning star is Venus. One of the church fathers, Oikumenius, identifies the morning star with Satan. And so under his interpretation, God is promising to put Satan beneath our feet. And of course, that is theologically true, but whether or not the morning star is connected with Satan is up for debate. Uh, My interpretation is that this image of being given the morning star signifies our receiving of Christ's kingship and our co-reigning with him over the nations. I take it specifically to refer to these first century saints who are going to endure the darkest night in the history of the world, namely the Great Tribulation. But they are also going to receive the first light before dawn, the first resurrection, and then they are going to reign with Christ in the millennium. So these saints received this morning star in AD 70, and they currently reign and rule with Christ over all the world in fulfillment of Psalm 2. 
And this should encourage us in our day to keep fighting against the darkness, to wage spiritual warfare by prayer and preaching, to not tolerate false teachers and Jezebels in our churches, and to exercise church discipline according to Christ's command. We need to be intolerant the way Christ was intolerant. If you were to summarize the main message that Jesus has for the churches, it's you need to deal with these false teachers. You need to kick some people out. You need to hate what Jesus hates and you need to love what Jesus loves because Jesus is jealous for the purity of his bride. And if we do this, we too will see the increase of peace and of Christ's government, of which there shall be no end. And amen. Up next, we'll look at the remaining three churches in Revelation chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we get a glimpse into heaven. Until next time, keep on reading.